Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. How we doing? We good? You look great. Hey, thanks for coming today and being here today. And, and honestly, like we just, I think Pastor Trevor said it a second ago, like we never take it for granted that you choose to come and to be a part of what God's doing here at Generations Church. And thanks for being willing to be a little bit inconvenienced. Again, if today's your first time and you, you don't normally attend here, this may not be something that you're even aware of and other than the fact that we've referenced it. But if you are uh, kind of a regular here and this is kind of your church home, then you know that over the next few weeks, we may be a little bit inconvenienced. I think back in September when I was laying out kind of the plan and the timeline or whatever, I think I referenced that it's going to feel a little bit like pregnancy. I had three women slap me. But other than that, I felt like it was a pretty good metaphor because we'll experience a season of discomfort uh, so that in the end of this process, we will actually get to experience um, all that God is birthing here and doing here through Generations Church. So downstairs, we're creating a brand new kind of worship experience for adults, worship auditorium, a bigger lobby space, and some supporting structures over across here um, will be the elevator and stairs that will bring us upstairs. And all of this upstairs space then will be dedicated to kind of our kids on Sunday, our youth on Wednesday night, uh, and just some support classrooms and things for some of the other pieces that we do in ministry. And so we're excited about that. We're thankful for that. We're thankful that you're on this journey with us. And so over the next eight weeks or so, it may be a little bit more difficult, but we encourage you to keep coming, be here, uh, be a part of what God's doing. It's going to be really exciting to kind of see it all unfold. Uh, I'm also excited because uh, you heard Pastor Trevor reference it a second ago, like Couple to Couples coming. This is one of our favorite events of the year, uh, and so it, it starts in two weeks, and so if you haven't registered, um, go ahead and do that. I think we had like five or six couples registered at 8.30, so those spots are filling up. It will uh, sell out because you can see in this room, like our ability to put round tables with people in here shrunk, and so um, we know we're actually only able to offer space for less people than came to the event last year, and our church has grown a lot, and so we know that we won't be able to, to accommodate everyone, even though we want to try, so we'd love for you to register, be a part of that. It's going to be a great event. Today, I am continuing in the series that I started last week called Love You More, and I said to you last week that this was really kind of birthed out of the idea that, uh, you know, when you first started dating someone or you first got into a loving relationship with someone that, you know, wasn't your parents or your siblings or whatever, you know, they might say, love you, and then you might, in an attempt to try to win that conversation, say, love you more. Like, I love you more than you could possibly love me. I want you to know how much my affection beats for you, and like, you just give them all that. And so, you know, then I told you that Corey now with our four kids, and she has since they were very little, um, you know, whenever they're leaving the house, she'll kind of throw up the I love you sign, and then they will throw that back up to her, and then she'll throw up one more finger that says, I love you too, I love you more, and so that's kind of caught on in our house, and so you can steal that if you'd like to do that for your own family, but today, we're going to continue in this, last week more looking at a philosophical 50,000 foot level of relationships, you know, loving God, our vertical relationship, loving others horizontally, and so we talked about that, if you weren't here, I'd love for you to listen to the podcast. Today, I want to kind of dive deeper into one specific aspect of relationships. I want to talk about kind of romantic relationships. I want to talk about dating relationships and really ultimately marriage relationships. And I recognize that everybody in the room, in the room is married, and I understand that. But I think that there's some truth here for all of us today. Whether you are currently married, you intend to get married someday. Uh, I think for all of us, there are some truths that are contained here that will help all of us to grow in our relationship with God and ultimately our view on life in general as we live here on the earth. And so as I was thinking about today over the last few weeks in preparation for this, I recognize that each of us has a different context 
for even the idea of marriage and romantic relationships. Now, we don't always get this specific into like one specific idea or one part of relationships because we recognize everybody comes at it from a different place in life. And so, you know, we, we stay broader in general to try to connect to as many people as possible. But today, I, very, I really specifically feel led of the Lord to kind of take this approach. And so I know you may come in having a great marriage, a great relationship that's headed towards marriage. You may have a lot of hurts in your past. You may have brokenness in your past. You may have divorce as a part of your past or divorce in your family that's causing you to have an aversion towards marriage or those types of relationships. And so I know that. And so I just would ask you to kind of give me grace as I try to give you grace as we try to dive into these truths related to this topic of love you more than the fairy tale. Because ultimately from birth almost, we are presented with one specific view of romantic relationships, marriage, dating, those kind of things. It's, it's the prince and the princess at Disney. It's those movies, those cartoons. And we see these types of relationships develop. As we get a little older, we're introduced to like romantic movies, rom-coms and the Hallmark Channel and all of those things. And all of those are good. But ultimately they give us somewhat of a skewed perspective about what relationships like this look like. And so I want us to all kind of just take a, an eyes wide open view today at, at these types of relationships to determine who we are in that context and ultimately what God is calling us to in these types of relationships. Now, there is an awesome Old Testament story that I think we can learn from, but I've already apologized to the 830 service because I have to tell you that this Old Testament story involves a man that has two wives. Now, I know that's messy, and it's like, oh, what are we preaching here? And I don't really know how that's even possible. I, I struggle enough just to have one wife. And so that was way funnier. Like, you should have laughed a lot harder right there. I've been working on that all week long, but okay, that's fine. So there is this story here in the Old Testament. It's a guy by the name of Jacob. Jacob is a guy that we have referenced a few times over the last few months. We referenced him in our Christmas series as we talked about um, kind of where he laid out in the, the lineage of Jesus Christ. We referenced him in November when we were talking about the forgiveness story of Jacob and his brother Esau. So this story of Jacob is that he was on the run from his family. He had robbed his brother and manipulated his father and his family of origin. And he's now on the run really for his life. He's trying not to be killed by his brother who he assumes wants to destroy him. And so his mom sent him to a distant country and said, hey, I've got some distant relatives that live there. So you can go and try to find life with them for a season until your brother calms down. And so we come to this in Genesis chapter 29. And this is the story where Jacob... Jacob finds some of these men at a well, and they're, they're kind of feeding or, or giving water to their animals. And so Jacob has a conversation with them, and when he does, he ultimately meets a young woman that catches his eye. Look at this in Genesis 29, beginning in verse 9. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and the son of Rebekah, who was his mother. So she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all of these things. Now, as we read through this, there's a couple things that I want you to know I am not advocating today. I am not advocating that you cry right after your first kiss. That probably gives the other person the wrong idea about how you felt about that kiss. The other thing that I'm not encouraging you to do is to go hang out at water wells hoping that a really smoking hot female shepherd comes by your way and catches your eye and then you know in that moment, this is the one I'm supposed to marry. That's probably going to turn up empty for most of us if that's how you're trying to find your lifetime significant 
other. But I do think that there's some truths here in this story that all of us can learn from, especially those that are married or are going to be married. Here's what I see in this story right away. Jacob immediately knew that Rachel was the one for him. Now, maybe you've heard those kinds of stories, right? Maybe that is your story. Maybe you're the story that, like, you saw her across the room at the office party or he walked into seventh grade science class and you knew right then, this is the one I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. How incredible. If that's your story, congratulations. We are all jealous of you. But for others of us, it's like maybe that's not exactly what happened. I've told the story a bunch. Corey and I met when we were 13. I was walking one way down a sidewalk. She was walking this way down a sidewalk with her friends. And then I turned around and started walking this way down the sidewalk. I spent like the next eight years trying to figure out how to convince really her, because me and her mom were in cahoots, to figure out how do I make this girl love me, right? That's really how I spent the next eight years. But one day, we were both in her apartment in college, and she was putting her cans in her cabinets, And she was like up on the countertop putting cans away. And I was sitting on her couch in her apartment. And I I don't know, maybe it was God, maybe it was something I ate. But in that moment, as I watched her, I thought, I want her to put my cans away the rest of my life. (laughs) And that's how I knew, eight years after we met. So maybe that's a similar story to you. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's going to take you a little while to figure out like exactly how and when you know you're supposed to marry this person I remember, I've done a number of weddings, and and they're all really special in different ways, and I remember one time that I was about to walk out, very similar to kind of walking out onto the stage there and going to the altar with a young man that that I was going to, to perform the wedding, and it was him and his best man, and we are like 30 seconds from walking out. And we'd done some premarital counseling, and and, and I feel like my job in premarital counseling is just to ask questions and create conversation moments so that they can be honest with one another and make sure we're dealing with the right stuff before, you know, they say I do. And so we've done some of that, and man, we're like 30 seconds from walking out, and he looks at me with all honesty and sincerity in his face, and he goes, you think this thing's going to (laughs) work? Um, do we need to pause this? Like... I'll be the bad guy. Let me go. Let's make sure you're sure before you let this girl walk down the aisle here. And so so I recognize that some of you don't have the same inclination that Jacob had here. When he saw Rachel, he knew this is the woman that I love with all of my heart. He kissed her. He cried like he's emotionally connected to this moment. Like it's powerful. But maybe that's not your story. And here's what I want you to know today. Don't allow the details of someone else's love story to rob you of the beauty that's found in yours. Because ultimately, not everyone has the same story. And so there are incredible details in other people's stories, and some of those we wish was ours, and we aspire for it to be ours, and we love those movies, and we love those stories, we love those books. But ultimately, if we allow those details to rob us of the beauty that's found in our love story, we will always feel like we're playing from behind. And that's not the way that God has intended our lives to be lived. So Jacob goes to Laban, his his distant relative, he goes to Laban's house, and ultimately he's already decided, like, Rachel's the one for me. And so he decides to say to his future father-in-law, here's the plan, here's what I would like to do. I want to marry your daughter Rachel, and to do so, I'm willing to work for you for seven years. That's a long time. Some of you couldn't last engagement for three months, right? He's like, I, I want to be betrothed to your daughter, Rachel, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'll work for seven years. And his, his father-in-law said, okay, here's how this will work. So verse 20, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, 
But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. How romantic is that? Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. Verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. This is like a marriage uh, ceremony, wedding ceremony. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. Verse 25. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. Now, it's interesting here. If you know the story of Jacob, you know that he's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He's always trying to get a good deal. And he got snookered by his father-in-law, right? And so it's funny to me that his father-in-law is like, hey, here's the deal. You, you worked for me for seven years. I'm ready to give my daughter to you. And he presents Leah to her. She's covered. Jacob doesn't actually realize it's Leah until the next morning. And he wakes up and it's like, this is not Rachel. What happened? He says, hey, didn't I agree to work for you for seven years for Rachel? What is your deal? And Laban says, no, this is not how we do it in our parts here. The custom here is that we give the older daughter first. So I'll give you Rachel if you'll work for me another seven years. And so Jacob did it. Now, I recognize that in this story, it is very literally a different person that Jacob wakes up next to. But I think in a very figurative sense, there are some of us that thought we were marrying one person and we actually married someone different. There's a lot of reasons for it. But perhaps you spent this season of preparation for marriage, getting to know one another, and maybe you rushed the process. Maybe you didn't get to know them as well as you could or should. Maybe you were afraid to have the hard conversation or to ask the hard questions or to maybe possibly potentially upset them. And so you didn't really dig into those parts that you felt like you probably needed to know about them. And so you glazed over it because you love one another and you want to spend the rest of your life together and you want this romantic story. And so the wedding was awesome or maybe it wasn't, but eventually you're married and it's like, wow, I had no idea you had morning breath like that, right? Or maybe in a much deeper sense, I mean, I watched you lose your temper, you know, watching a ball game, but I didn't know you would lose your temper after just a bad day at work like this. I mean, like, I, I thought you were a little more emotionally healthy than you are. I mean, I knew that you drank a little, but I didn't know you always drank a lot. And we end up married to someone that's different than the person we thought we were married and I, I get it. Sometimes it's because the other person didn't give you access. They were really good at hiding some of themselves from you. And it's unfair to you. And for that, I'm sorry. And I know that that's, that's unfortunate. It, it should be unnecessary. And yet, perhaps that's the way it ended up, through no fault of your own. But if you are not married yet... Whether you've been married before or you haven't, and if you're a student in the room or, or, or a young adult of some kind and you're intending to get married at some point in your future, let me just say to you, spend the time doing the necessary work to get to know this person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Ask the hard questions. Have some healthy conflict. See how they handle stress. See what they act like when they're tired. See what their family is like. Because I promise you, you will not regret that effort, but you might regret some things if you don't take the effort early on. So here's the deal. What do you do if you are married to someone that ended up being different than you thought? I mean, you thought you knew them when you said, I do. 
but now you realize you don't know them very well at all. So what do you do? Well, ultimately what we read there is that his father-in-law Laban said to Jacob, I'll give you Rachel if you'll work for me for seven more years. And so he did. Verse 30 says this, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban for seven more years. Now again, this story breaks down a little bit as we talk about your marriage or your relationship with your present or future spouse. But I think there's truth in what we're reading right here. That if you find yourself in a relationship that's different than the fairy tale, you find yourself in a relationship that this person seems different than who you thought you were marrying, there's really just one objective for each of us. We just go to work. Whoever told us in our culture and in our society that marriage wasn't work lied to us. Marriage, a healthy, good marriage, requires us to work at it. There's no perfect marriage that doesn't require some effort on your part to really make it be so. Because we're two different people coming from two different families of origin with two different perspectives, two different ideas about every single thing we do in life. And we're trying to merge those things together under one roof. And then we're trying to potentially have kids and raise kids and, and raise a family and, and live a life and build a life and create a life. And so we just have to go to work. Now, I recognize that there are some of you who are in a marriage that's a little different than what I'm describing. And I don't want you, I don't want to go very much further here before I say to you, if you are in a marriage where you're being abused, if you're in a marriage where someone continued to be unfaithful to you, and you've discovered that there are biblical grounds for you to get out of that marriage. God has given you the opportunity to protect yourself. And I am not encouraging you to stay in something where you are being harmed. But ultimately for the rest of us that may not find ourselves presently in that kind of relationship or potentially in that kind of relationship as we move towards our future, I want you to know that a good marriage, a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship like this requires work. And so what are we willing to do to create that kind of relationship? We have to talk about things that make us uncomfortable sometimes. We have to trust when not trusting seems easier. We have to tell the truth when it would probably be easier to tell a little white lie and cover something up. We have to give in. We have to compromise. We don't always get to have our way. We have to think about someone else's needs and wants. We have to forgive when someone else who should know better hurts us deeply. We have to say we're sorry even when we don't feel like we're entirely at fault. And there's so many other things. But this is a great place to start. Because society has convinced us that when the going gets tough, it's time to get going. And that's not true. Ultimately, as we look at divorce and look at marriage, I recognize there's a lot of reasons for divorce. I've already outlined some of them biblically. But when you really do some studies, there's a lot of things that are, are, are mentioned that are not actually true as, as it relates to statistics. A lot of pe people will tell you that at least half or more than half of marriages end in divorce. And when you couple together all of the relationships, that may be true. But as it relates to first marriages, here's the actual hard data, okay? In the first five years of marriages, about 20% of couples get divorced. So, I mean, that's too high in my opinion, but it's not quite as high as potentially you might think. In the first five years of marriage, one out of five, 20% of marriages end in divorce. Of those that remain married, 33% of those remaining marriages get divorced between years six and ten. Of those who remain married beyond that point, another 43% of those marriages end in divorce between years 11 and 15. Again, those numbers are higher than we would ever wish them to be. And it's for a lot of reasons. 
But once you start stacking second, third, fourth marriages on, then that's when the numbers get really, really high because first marriages end in divorce at a much lower rate than second, third, and fourth marriages end in divorce. And so you have to work at it, whether it's your first marriage or one beyond that. You've really got to put in the work. But beyond those reasons that I've already mentioned, adultery, uh, being unfaithful, abuse, which are obviously reasons that people would seek divorce. Do you know that over the last 20 years what the number one reason that people seek a divorce in their marriage is? Irreconcilable differences. You know what the percentage of those that get divorced for irreconcilable differences is? 80% of all divorces. 80% of all divorces over the last 20 years got divorced because of irreconcilable differences. As I was trying to think about that, I was like, well, what is that? What does that even mean? What is the definition? Here's the definition of irreconcilable differences. Differences of opinion or will that cannot be brought into harmony or cannot be brought into agreement through compromise. Differences of opinion or will that cannot be brought into harmony or cannot be brought into agreement through compromise. As I started thinking about that definition, which is the legal definition, I started looking through these legal resources to determine, okay, well, give me some examples of irreconcilable differences. And this is what I found. Unwanted involvement from in-laws. Don't laugh right there, okay? I have the best in-laws, by the way, in case they're listening to the podcast. <laughs> Failing to find a balance between work and home life. Failure to communicate. Lack of intimacy. Personal habits or idiosyncrasies. Lack of participation in household responsibilities. Relationships with friends, political views, debt problems, differences in disciplining the children. These are the most prescribed definition of irreconcilable differences of the 80% of relationships that end in divorce in the last 20 years in the United States of America. Now, some of those have very profound impacts on your relationship, and I get it, and in no way am I making light of any of those things, because when you're in the moment, they all seem huge, and some of them definitely are. But I also would say to you that as I look over this list, and unfortunately over the last 20 years of ministry, as I sit with other married couples, and I even think about my own marriage, I've never met a couple, healthy or otherwise, who didn't have some or all of these issues present in their relationship. As I think about this Unwanted involvement from in-laws. Some of the biggest arguments we had in the first 36 months of our marriage was my mom or her mom or holidays or raising children differently than we were. I mean, like, you just start thinking through. Like, I can't think of the number of relationships and marriages of people we've talked about. Finding a balance between work and home life. If you ever figure that out, write the book. I'll buy it and sell it for you. Failure to communicate personal habits and idiosyncrasies. I've met some of you. You're weird, right? <laughs> Your spouse tells me all the... No, I'm just kidding, right? Lack of participation and household responsibility. Some of these are, are huge deals. And in your circumstances, I know that they can even build on one another to make it even be bigger than any of these isolated by themselves. But again, what I want you to know is that almost every married couple I've ever been around, including my own, has some or all of these issues. And so the question becomes, then what are we to do with it as we attempt to serve God, honor God, in the context of a healthy relationship. Let me just say again, not by way of advertisement, but by way of vision. Like the why behind what we do with couple to couple. We want you to come together and sit around a round table with three other couples to figure out that you are not so weird. 
Over the last 10 years when we've done this event, I can't tell you the number of stories that Corey and I have heard from couples that will leave after week one or week three or week four and go, oh my goodness, we had no idea that other couples struggle with the same exact issues that we struggle with. And so what we want to do is create an environment where you can come together and laugh together about the commonality of some of these issues rather than stay at home by yourself crying about them. We want to create that kind of safe, healthy environment for you to figure out that perhaps in some of these instances, these differences are not irreconcilable. They are very much reconcilable if we are willing to put in the work to make it work. If we're willing to put in the work to make it work. And, and here's what I see in this story. I see that Jacob loved Rachel, so he worked for her. Not just seven years but for 14 years, he worked just to have the right to be married to the one that his heart initially responded to. And if you will allow me for like 45 seconds to get on a soapbox, I don't ever do this. We always stay as closely to scripture as I can stay. But let me just share with you what I've experienced, what I've watched with my own eyes. If you're a man in the room, if you're a husband in the room, Keep fighting for your wife. Keep giving your best effort for her. You're not going to do it perfectly, neither do I. But she's worth it. And the reality is you used to be willing to drive through the night just to have breakfast with her before she had to go to work, or you did. You used to spend the last dollar in your wallet to buy her anything you want. And now you will gripe about every dollar that she spends. You don't make her a priority she doesn't need your flowers. She doesn't really need gifts. All she wants to know is that she still matters to you and you would still pick her if you had it to do over again. And there are so many couples where it just breaks down because one or the other, but honestly, usually in my experience, it's been the husband who just stops fighting for his wife. It's not worth it. The enemy's fighting you because your marriage tells a larger story than man and woman. It tells the story of Christ and his church. And the reason that the enemy's fighting against you is because if he can break apart your marriage, he can convince those that are connected to your marriage that God's love for you or for them is just as conditional as the love that you profess to your wife is conditionally based. So to the very best of your ability, to the very best of my ability, men, let's lead the way, lead our homes, and chase after your wife. Don't open the door for somebody else to make her feel like a million bucks because she couldn't have two nickels to rub together with all the compliments you've been giving her over the years. Fight for your wife. Back to the story. So Jacob loved Rachel. And because he loved her, he worked for her. And I would love to then go to the part of the story where Rachel is the fairy tale. She was loved. She was chased. She was pursued. But I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about Leah. Leah woke up on the day that should have been the happiest day of her life, only to discover that her husband did not love her. He didn't love her nearly as much as he thought she would, or she thought he would. And her life now is playing out completely different than the fairy tale she thought her life would become. And so if we are in Leah's shoes, like, what is it that we would do? Well, let's just watch what happened. God saw the circumstances of the story. 
He saw that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And so for a season, he closed Rachel's womb and he opened Leah's womb to allow her to have children, to birth sons for her husband, Jacob. And then look at what happens here. This is verse 32. She named her first son Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Verse 33, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard that I am not loved He gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at least my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. Think about those three names, those three boys and what they represent in the heart of a woman who felt unloved. The first son she named out of her misery. The second son she named out of feeling unloved. And the third son she named because she felt all alone. She said, the Lord has seen my misery. Maybe now my husband will love me. Maybe now my husband will come and be attached to me. And whether you're a woman in the room, a man in the room, young or old, perhaps you would identify with what Leah felt. Some days your life feels miserable. Beyond the circumstances that you're walking through, maybe you feel unloved and unlovable. Maybe you feel alone. Like nobody knows what you're walking through. Nobody cares about you. And so what do you do? Well, we don't know the shift that happened in Leah's heart, but something changed between the third son and the fourth son. Those first three boys were named out of her misery and her unloving kind of heart and place that she found herself, unlovable and and being alone. And so all those boys kind of were, were named out of those circumstances. But look at what happens here. In verse 35, as she conceives and has a fourth son, says, this time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. She named him Judah. In the Hebrew, the name Judah means praise. It means thanksgiving. It means worship. There's something that shifted in Leah's heart between the first three boys and the fourth. It was almost as if she determined that her pain would no longer define her. And that she was able to praise God, even in the midst of what she felt. Even in the midst of the pain and the circumstances that she felt. And so perhaps she was able to hold on to and grasp on to a truth that all of us need to hold on to. And it's that even in our brokenness, there can still be blessing. We always compare up. Very rarely do we compare down. And that's not to make you feel better or worse than anybody. It's just to use an illustration I think we can all connect to. We look at other people's relationships. We look at other people's lives. We look at other people's social media accounts. And we assume that it doesn't take as much work from them to accomplish what they're doing than what we do. It just seems like our life is harder. It seems like our life is is worse off. It seems like our marriage is not as good and our home life isn't as good. And we're always comparing ourselves to what we don't yet have, but we miss what we do have how there's thousands of people that would trade places with us tomorrow because of the blessings that do exist in our marriage or in our lives or in our homes or on our jobs or whatever it is that we have. And so we have to maybe dig for that. We have to mine for the gold that exists there to find the blessing that exists in the midst of our brokenness, to find the praise in the midst of our pain. That's the story of Leah. As Leah recognized, my life is not the fairy tale I hoped it would be. I've dreamed about this all of my life, only to wake up and be married to a man who doesn't love me. Maybe children. So this first one is misery, and the second one is because I'm unloved, and the third one is because I feel alone. But there's a shifting. And at some point, she's able to turn her heart to God and say, I I will name this one. I will turn my heart to praise toward 
God. And perhaps for some of us today, that's exactly what we need to do. Bless God, praise God in the midst of our pain and our brokenness. I don't know what your marriage looks like if you're married. I don't don't know what your relationships look like. I have no idea. But could it be that the greatest thing that you could say if you are married to your spouse is I love you more than the fairy tale? I recognize our life is different than perhaps we dreamed when we first met. I recognize that there's some pain we didn't want, we hoped would never happen. I realize there's some brokenness in our story that we would not have written if we had known. But I love you more than the fairy tale. I love you more than the image I had in my head when I was watching princes and princesses and Hallmark movies and romantic comedies and all of those things. I love you more than the fairy tale. And perhaps the greatest love story that could be written with the rest of our lives is to say I love you more than all of that. I love you more because of what we've walked through together. I love you more because of what we've learned through our pain. I love you more because we stuck it out when we didn't have to. I love you more because you stayed when you could have left. I love you more than the fairy tale. Now let's create a new happily ever after. I don't know your story. I don't know the pain. I don't know the brokenness. I don't know how they turned out to be somebody different than you thought. I I, I don't know. And if they're harming you, hurting you, abusing you, if they've been unfaithful to you, you absolutely have the right to walk away. No questions asked. You do have that right. But when those are not the things that exist, don't allow reconcilable differences to seem like irreconcilable differences. Fight for your marriage. If you're not yet married, but that's in your future one day, you hope and desire it to be, don't become depressed because the story isn't playing out like your favorite movie or your favorite book. Do the hard work of becoming the person you're looking for and allowing God to make you to be whole and healthy so that as you stand there in that moment, hopefully with me maybe standing there with you, and you're standing there with your future spouse, and you say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, I give myself completely to you. Do the hard work now. If you're dating, you're engaged whether the date is set or not, but you don't feel like you know them well enough yet to make this kind of commitment, don't become a statistic. Take the time to do the hard work. Dig deep. Ask the hard questions. Don't hire a private investigator. Don't start from a place of distrust. Just learn who they are and let them see who you are. Don't allow the enemy Don't allow the enemy to take your story and make it a tragedy because he recognizes the power that your story possesses. He recognizes. That's why he's fighting so hard. But today you can take a stand. You can say, I want to live like this thing matters. I want to live like my marriage matters and my parenting matters and my home life matters. I want to live like the story of my life matters because it does I love you more than the fairy tale. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. If you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, 
I know that I need to enter into a relationship with God. I need to give God the first and best of my life. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I need him to forgive my sins and I need to give him control of my life today. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? I wanna pray for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now, if you'd say to me, Jeremy, for me, I wanna fight for my marriage. I wanna fight for my relationships. I wanna give myself wholly and completely so it may mean having a hard conversation. I really want my marriage to tell a larger, grander story And so I want to fight to create a new happily ever after from this day forward. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. Thank you for your honesty, vulnerability. And if you would say to me today, you know what, I'm I'm miserable. I feel unlovable, unloved, and alone. And I need God to help me figure out how to praise out of my pain and find blessing in my brokenness. And I need him to help me. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? I want to pray for you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for your honesty. God, we love you today. We love you every day. We thank you in this moment that you forgive sins. You change eternities forever. And so God, I thank you for people that lifted their hands today to acknowledge their need for you. Forgive their sins. Be the Lord of their lives from this moment forward. We welcome them into the family of God. Let them walk in victory from this point forward. God, I pray for those who say, I just, I want to love better. I want to love completely. I want to give myself wholly and completely. I want to fight for my marriage and fight for my family and my relationships. God, would you help them to have the strength to do that, to have the hard conversations, to forgive well, to do the hard work so that they tell the story of Christ and his church. And God, I pray for those now who lifted their hands to say, I am miserable, I feel unloved and alone. God, would you help them to feel your presence, obviously, but also, God, would you surround them with earthly relationships that would be fulfilling to them, that would fill in the gaps of the places that they seek but aren't yet. God, would you help them to find a way to turn their pain into praise and find blessing even in the midst of brokenness. God, in all of those things, would you be glorified? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.